Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Are you feeling good? Am I feeling good? Yeah. I'm feeling pretty darn good because something exciting happened to me today. What? I went to a real live store. <laughs> you left. <laughs> For the first time in three months. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was able to walk around a store. It was great. <laughs> Can I ask what store it was? It was Trader Joe's. <laughs> I mean, worthy store to go to. Yeah, it was great. It was amazing. And then uh, we went next door to Home Goods because oh, I wanted to look at the Christmas decoration. That's a one-two combo right there. Yeah, uh, so I guess it was two stores, which is pretty amazing. Well, I mean, in Home Goods, you could definitely do multiple mm-hmm, rounds mm-hmm. Um, yeah. doing that. But yeah, so yeah. how are but, you feeling? <laughs> I am doing. Pretty good. We're approaching soon to be winter break over here in Seattle, which Yay. is awesome. But I'm also feeling that winter break burnout come in mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you're just like, who knows what this last week of therapy is going to look like? <laughs> you're just trying your best. Maybe it's games. Yeah, you know, you can make it a game. Every Any activity is a language activity. That's what I'm go. saying, right? So... <laughs> We're always working on that auditory comprehension. So really feeling the heat from work, but Mm -hmm. that just means I'm ready for a break, which is awesome. And I'm looking forward to that. Other than that, just enjoying life. Yeah. Any more plant babies? Oh, a ton. I have actually, I got more, like, I like three more this time. I got like three more plants this past week. Do you need help? Should I send help? That's why I was like, I, it, it was so funny. I had this conversation with somebody else and they were like, no, it, it, it's, it was, a, it was a, a group of other SLPs, of course. And they were like, it brings you joy. <laughs> it's okay. Right? And yes. I was like, thank you for that. I will try to stand in that truth. But it's also one of those things where I definitely fell prey to that consumerism that a lot of people do when they get into any new hobby or, you know, something that they have access to. They just want to buy it. Oh, yeah. You should see my arts and crafts collection. <laughs> or you It's know, great. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as like when we consumed for like therapy materials when we were younger and newer and didn't know any better Uh, or like oh how much money i spent on materials right or even like ceus i remember when i graduated from grad school i legit thought well i want to get certified in this and this and this and i was like nope (laughs) yeah i was lucky that i had an employer that paid for a lot of ces when i was early in my career because it really helped me and now i don't have that so yeah. I'm I mean, it's tough. It. Like there are so many program specific things that require a lot of money and training. And, you know, we, I, I wish the wealth was just shared, <laughs> you know, right. uh, but it's, it's definitely not that you can't say you're doing this if you don't have the certification to, to back it up. Well, and you have to get these CEs to maintain your license. Right. Yeah. And it's like, if you're lucky, you can find some free CEs out there, but Oh, for sure. Like, it's one of those things where I am the guilty party. So if anybody actually feels um, shamed about this, I will. I'm, I'm that guy that waits to the last year and is like, oh, I got to get 30 CEs. <laughs> like, Can I do 30 CEs in a weekend? I yep. don't know, but I'm like, going to try. I'm like, how many left? Yeah. How many like devices do I have that can play <laughs> and then just take the test at the end. It's so bad to think like that, but you yeah. know, everybody does it. I can't think of one person who yeah. hasn't thought through or listened through a CE while they were doing something else. And, oh, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it's tough. Speaking of CEs, hmm. did you see in the December Asher leader, there was this tiny little blurb saying <sighs> that starting in like 2023, we're going to have to get two hours of cultural humility slash cultural competence slash you name it 
CEs. Is that on top of ethics? Yeah, I think it's like as part of that 30 hours, right? So the ethics, you have to get like 30 minutes within that 30. Right. And then two hours within that 30. That's great. Well, I think it's a good sign in my opinion. It's us leaning towards a more holistic approach towards therapy, but also like recognizing that like our role is so much bigger than like speech sound disorders. Oh, we're working with people. Right. What? Right. People? Right. (laughs) And like and people are complicated and especially coming out of a like collectively traumatic experience. Yeah. We we need new skills. We need new skills. And in order for that to happen across the board, there needs to be requirements. It's not just gonna happen because people feel like they want to get better for their patients or their students or clients. It's it's one of those things where like I get it. Like it we're all just kind of like doing therapy by numbers in some yeah. in some way right now, you know, because oh, we're yeah. just trying to get we're through doing the best we can. So if if there's a mandate that says, hey, this is the focus now, then okay. I'll okay. be I'm I'll I might begrudgingly do something, but I'm gonna do it. Right. <laughs> so so yeah, I did see that. Thank you for sharing. So that's a new one. Anything else? I know you're looking to get moving back to work in January, still yeah, doing preschool. Gonna- Yes. I, my goal is to be back at work in mid January. That's, that's the hope I'm walking Mm -hmm. without crutches. Yes. But it's very slow. And I, there's a lot of things as, as any SLP working with young children knows, right. You have to be able to sit on the floor. You have to be able to squat and kneel and chase after a child if they decide to make a run for it. Um, Right. So I've got, I've got some, I've got a ways to go. Right. But with my PT, my trusty PT, I think I will get there. Um, How often are you doing PT these days? Once a week. Okay. With, and a lot of exercises that I have to do every day. Oh, I'm sure. Grueling. It, it is. And, you know, this is the first time that I've ever gone to speak physical therapy. I've Mm -hmm. been a very healthy person until apparently I turned 40. (laughs) And so you can look forward to that, Hector. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Never been to PT before. I'm learning a lot about PT and it's hard, really hard. Well, kudos to you for sticking with it. I know like like any good therapy program, it's all about how much work you put in and the repetition. Yes. So that's the thing. I was like, oh my gosh. And the way that the PT communicates to me, sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to be really more aware of how I explain things to people because, you know, sometimes I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> are they using a lot of jargon? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. And it's like some of it I know because I've taken anatomy classes, like right, right. You know, anterior, posterior, mm. like you know, adduction, abduction, like those kinds of words. I know what those mean, right? But the average person probably doesn't. And I'm like, no. oh my gosh, the the names, the names of the exercises I have to do might not make sense to some people. Oh yeah, even I still go to PT now for some sports injuries and i'm like can you write that in an email to me <laughs> like can you, attach a, vid- can you attach a video because i don't really remember or yeah. know what you're talking about if i just saw that name out there so anyway should we should we introduce the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yes yes that was a great check-in um i'm very happy to hear now, now that we've checked in yeah welcome to the queer slp right welcome everybody uh my name is hector and my pronouns are he him and i'm natalie my pronouns are she her and we are here today with you to share a Another very special episode because we have an OT on the show today. Natalie, can you explain what an OT is? An OT is an occupational therapist. Speaking of using jargon, right? (laughs) Yes, using jargon. But I don't want to give away the, the great things that our occupational therapist says about what occupational therapists do. Correct. But if you're not familiar with what OT is, it's occupational therapy, and they do a lot. 
And I feel like I learned a ton. It's, I, it's interesting because I've worked with OTs for as long as I've been an SLP and didn't really, I realized I didn't really know what they do, not fully. Mm-hmm. And this conversation with Alvin really, really opened my eyes to what an OT does. Oh, I, one, resonated so much with our guest today, mostly because I'd never met another, like, cis gay male person of color OT. I did not know that existed. You know, I often think of myself as the unicorn in the SLP world. I don't know what the, you know, like demographics are in OT world, but in my experience, they do not look like Alvin and I. (laughs) It was a, it was a unicorn duo day. And it was a treat. Hopefully all of you that get to listen, learn a little bit more about what it is to be an OT. What's it like being a person within the queer community that practices as an OT and and also, you know, as a person of color, but also a cis male working in pediatrics. Yeah, we had some interesting conversations about that. Definitely. And, uh, and also just, it, it was great to sort of compare and contrast the OT field and the SLP field and how how the cultures are different and pretty much how they're the same. You know, there's, there's a lot of similarities, I think. Lots of overlap. Um, demographically, especially. Yeah. Sad to to hear. Yeah. And which (laughs) makes me think, oh, I wonder, we'll have to get a PT on next, a physical therapist, just so you know, kind of get all the allied healthcare professionals. (laughs) I know. I was like, my PT is straight, but. (laughs) I'm sure there's somebody (laughs) out there, uh, but it will be great. uh, And we'll we'll, we'll get everybody. But yeah, hopefully you all enjoy Alvin Pineda. Um, otherwise known as OT Outside the Box, who is from the Bay Area all the way in California. So yeah, hope you enjoy. It's a treat. Yes, please do. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And we have our guest. Alvin. And uh, my pronouns are he, him. Awesome. So special proud professional episode today because Alvin's not an SLP. (laughs) Something new and different. (laughs) Definitely different. So Alvin, tell us a little bit about what you do and the field you're part of. So as you mentioned, I'm not an SLP, uh, but I am in that field, in that realm. Uh, I am an occupational therapist. Uh, In particular, I am a pediatric occupational therapist. So um, I feel like I have to do my part and step on my like OT soapbox and really kind of describe what we do. Um, (laughs) So So I guess in particular, like with kids um, in a pediatric setting, I help kids build independence in gross motor skills, fine motor skills, uh, self-regulation, socialization, and help in sensory processing. Uh, I think one of the things most individuals don't realize is that kids have an occupation. Their their role is to to be a good friend. Their role is to be a good student, uh, to be uh, a brother, a sister, or whatnot. So uh, we need to help them and assist them in all of these skills. So uh, being a student, we work on all those things from fine motor skills, from writing to to regulating their their classroom environment. And at home, it's dressing, toileting, and all of these things. So. Uh, we really want to push them to live their lives independently to their maximum potential. So it's really being able to participate and engage in meaningful activities. I think um, that's super important uh, for for all my kids. So yeah, that was a a, a very awesome like introductory elevator yeah. speech because yeah. I know I already have like twenty questions just based on that so tell me more about but i'll let natalie go natalie go ahead go ahead well you know i I guess i never thought of it before but the word occupational like and use the word occupational as the child's occupation is xyz and i don't Mm. think i ever thought of ot as you know an occupation in that way you know i i've worked with plenty of ot's and i had an idea of like what what you do but i just i found it interesting 
the way that you phrased it about it being the child's occupation to do all of these things, um, is that generally how OTs that you've worked with all sort of view it? Is that just your own personal way of thinking about it? Well, I think when we're in OT school, we're like, this is what occupation is. There are so many like elements, whether it be our roles or our culture, it's really anything we do on a daily basis that's meaningful. So uh, occupation can go from being a mother to exercising. So really participating in that, it can be, can be anything. That's one of the reasons why I kind of fell in love with it, because the range of OT and occupation can, can lead to anything. I think we're taught to think that way, but many people kind of get stuck inside this box of of what OT is. We're we're those the, the hand therapists, we're the handwriting therapists. We only work on the upper extremities. It, it's something we as a profession are working on advocating a lot more, and I think it's really important to to show that. And one of the things we'll kind of talk about later is just that presence in social media. That's one of the reasons why I'm on there to to represent a minority in so many ways. I, I see myself as kind of a triple threat minority in in many aspects. So uh, I, I want to represent who I am in so many ways as a profession. We're, we're we're really advocating and showing anyone what we do as a profession and what occupation it really is. That's so awesome because I mean, both Natalie and I have at least been exposed to medical and like you, you hear OTs talk about like ADLs all the time as far as like the main focus. And I think, again, this was like my naivete, like 100% that occupation was just related to strictly what the, like the traditional definition of the word occupation is and how it relates to work related, like rehab but like mm. i think that's a really wonderful like direction and a like a broadening truly yeah. of your scope <laughs> i was just gonna say hector you said broadening i was like i feel like my brain is expanding <laughs> yeah. and my mind is already blown um yeah so w- we talked a little bit about like the the general kind of aspects of occupation and and that terminology another thing that's always a talked about piece that I don't think anybody really (laughs) knows about is like sensory processing. What does that even mean? What does that even like, who does that involve? What does, how do you even define that? So I think of sensory processing. I mean, we know our, our, our main five senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. And then as OTs, we, we see things, other aspects and other sensory systems. So there's a sensory system that tells us how fast we're moving. So when we're in a car, there's uh, that sensory system within our inner ears that 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 tells us and it helps us process how fast we're moving. And then there's another sensory system that is within our joints and our muscles that tells us how close we are to different things. So these other sensory systems and all these other five, they're really helping us understand our environment. So whether things are too loud, whether things feel a little different, like our clothes, or if our body uh, has difficulty understanding where we are in space, and we keep bumping into things, or we appear clumsy, those are kind of red flags in, in terms of sensory. What I see in terms of Working with kids is kids have difficulty processing all that information and regulating. So when kids are frustrated, it could be because of a certain sense. It can be very overwhelming and overstimulating for them. So uh, I like to describe it in in forms of like a visual, like a cup. Like kids have really small cups of auditory input or small cups of tactile input. So when it's full, it's super hard to regulate and process everything in their environment. But sensory, can, it, it's pretty difficult to, to understand. I've taken kind of multiple certifications in it, but it's why I fell in love with OT because it's very play-based, the approach that we use. So, uh, and for kids, play is an occupation. And many kids don't know how to play. And I'm sure as SLPs, you guys work on that as well in terms of communication. You know, what you were saying about sensory, I kind of started to see an overlap between OTs and SLPs. And I wonder if you would agree or not. Um, But in SLP land, you know, as part of our training, we take audiology classes and we learn about the inner ear and balance and how important inner ear function is to balance. And so, um, you know, 
we think about, you know, the the ear, the inner ear and how it's functioning as far as when a child is having a difficult time with proprioception or being in space. Um, and I don't know, it's just a very interesting overlap that I think that we share. Yeah. Uh, I just finished a certification with the Star Institute in Colorado. They're one of the top kind of research institutes in terms of sensory. And mm-hmm. I finished that class with a few, uh, I think there were two SLPs in there. And it's so interesting to see their their perspective and how they uh, intertwine sensory and speech together. There are very many overlapping areas within our two professions. So it, it was very cool and eye-opening to see that many speech therapists too are, are being trained in sensory uh, processing. Do you find that the sensory aspect kinds of kind of falls off as you get older as far as like the support needed for that? Or is sensory kind of like a lifelong thing? I know you're a pediatric OT, so yeah, may not be. Uh, I think it it's definitely a lifelong thing. When, when I try to work with families, I, I try to teach them not this sensory diet type of term, but like a sensory lifestyle. Because for me, I know that when I'm overwhelmed or anxious, I need to just kind of be in that kind of chill zone or I need to go run or I need to go work out. We know how to cope with these things as adults, but teaching kids to learn those skills now is so important uh, at this young of, of an age and helping them generalize that and have them kind of integrate that uh, into their daily routine because uh, it, it's so important for them to participate in, in daily occupations and, and engage in these things throughout their their life. So it, it's definitely something that's a continuation kind of going forward. Um, we can't change uh, whatever their disability is or, or their difficulties, but we can accommodate. Uh, many of the, the families, as they grow older, they learn how to, com- how to accommodate um, those certain sensory needs uh, as, they, as they go on, because it's really integrated and it's really part of their life. So uh, accommodation is really the, the best way uh, of doing it and integrating it within daily life. I love that because you kind of just <laughs> explained it in lay friendly SLP terms in the sense <laughs> that we all kind of like figure out strategies that work for us. And then as adults, we've just gotten better at integrating that sensory. Yeah, that sensory lifestyle. Yeah. It's no longer like it's it's not a diet. It's not a fad sensory yeah. diet. It's truly exactly. a lifestyle because we know what works for us. And those kiddos just don't know or don't have the capacity to 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 do it for themselves just yet. Awesome. That's so wonderful. Natalie, do you feel like we've yeah. covered OT as far as like a general overview or do is there more? Well, I definitely feel like I've learned more about OT than I knew before. Yeah. So yeah. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you, how you got into the field of occupational therapy, like how you heard about it, why you decided on it. Yeah. I think being OT, I I had no idea what it was, what it meant or anything kind of growing up. Um, So I grew up, I am Filipino. I I, I grew up thinking like, or being pushed to become a nurse, become a doctor. And those (laughs) so relatable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And those, those kind of pressures were there. And I knew for a fact that there's no way I want to be in that setting and I want to work that role and and that job. So uh, for many years, I I grew up uh, with a really, really large Filipino family. I have over 30, 40 cousins so we had uh, yeah. well yeah my 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 mom <laughs> my mom has 12 brothers and sisters and my dad has 13 so we, they all had at least two kids so we were always constantly at uh family gatherings and i was always the one kind of being the ringleader of the little kids so they always had a, a special relationship with me and i like i thoroughly enjoyed it from there, I worked in uh, different special ed camps and summer camps and after school programs. And I knew I wanted to work with this population. I just didn't know how. So I became a ABA therapist working strictly with the autistic population. And I found all these other professions and I spent my undergrad practice uh, learning in, in psychology and 
I was trying to figure out if I wanted to be an SLP, if I wanted to be a behavioralist or a physical therapist, but it was the aspects of play and sensory integration that that really pulled me towards the OT realm. They're really holistic in any other setting that you work in. We look at every little aspect of daily life rather than kind of that just strengthening like PT or or just speech, looking at, at those aspects or looking at behavior from a behavioral perspective. I just took everything that I loved about being a kid and playing into an actual job. So I was like, yeah, why not? I didn't learn about that until after my undergrad. So uh, I wish I could have definitely spent more time in my younger years being an OT. <laughs> you know, I, I just have a comment. So um, sometimes when people ask me what I do, I'll tell them something like, well, you know, I get paid to play Candyland and blow bubbles. <laughs> um, exactly. It, you know, sometimes it's just play and it's just fun. And you, you know, I'm coming at it from a communication standpoint. Yeah, but still it's, you know, I'm also attracted to the um, play aspect of the profession and working with kids is super fun. Play-based therapy is the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like as pre- in a preschool population, that's the only way, the only route you can really provide yeah. therapy is, is in a play-based setting and child-led setting. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think any, I'll, I'll say OT, PT, SLP, even SPED teacher, like anybody who goes in there thinking that they can get like drill-based therapy with the preschoolers. Mm. <laughs> disconnect there between reality and you know what you hope for but uh but that stuff play base is definitely the way to go um did you do a post back or did you fin- did you change directions before going into i'm assuming similar to speech you need a, a bachelor and a master's is that correct yep yeah. So you can have your bachelor's in, in basically anything. So I went the psychology route and then I took uh, about a year and a half, two years of prerequisites just to get into OT school. I grew up in New Jersey. So I was in the kind of the NYU, Columbia, Rutgers, and all those big schools, these Ivy League OT schools per se, but it, it was just super competitive. Uh, to get into OT school. So it was very hard to to find the right OT school that wanted you. But I was lucky enough to find a school that had a weekend program. So I, I went to weekend OT school Friday night, all day Saturday and all day Sunday. So uh, I was able to work kind of throughout then. But, but yeah. As an ABA I, it, therapist? It, it, yep, as an ABA. So I was in the school systems for the most part. And then when I had to do my internship is when I kind of had to really focus on OT. So I'm wondering, um, I don't know if this, if this is an outlook that it happens in OT, but I know that in SLP land, sometimes there's some disagreement between how SLPs approach communication and ABA therapists approach communication. And I'm wondering, as you, as you learned about OT, did, you, did it come into conflict with your, um, your ABA training or how did that look to you? Yeah, there is very much within the two professions of ABA and OT, sensory-based OT, there are very much butting heads. Uh, ABA sees it very much kind of very rote in in a way of really reinforcing that. Well, as OTs, we, we, we really understand why they're doing a certain behavior. They're seeking a certain type of input, have difficulty sitting because they need to move around their body doesn't understand where they are. Their body needs all this information and this movement just to process that information and to get in that just right state of learning. So there are very much so many butting heads. I remember doing a research project in OT school and I posted something and I said, I'm an ABA therapist. I, I want to learn more about sensory inter- integration. So I would love to interview some OTs who are certified in this. And they said, oh my gosh, why are you doing ABA? All of this. There was a lot of hate in, in this thing. And I was just like, well, that's why I'm changing professions. And I, I want to learn more about sensory. So um, it, it was very yeah. interesting to see. <laughs> there definitely is the same kind of reaction with SLPs when they hear about ABA therapists. Oh, for sure. Bit. Oh, I was like getting tense just waiting to hear what your just comment was going to be. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're going to need to have an ABA therapist on, or a BCBA out here next <laughs> just to see, yeah. <laughs> see what their side that is. That would be interesting. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, no, that would be so interesting. But yes, I think there is a lot of like 
BCBA, ABA, like all of that is definitely it's it's coming up in the it, it's there's a lot of conflicting feelings about oh, yeah. it um whichever side you're on to be honest interesting so you you graduated and then your first job is it your same job or did you like how did that go about no so i i graduated and then my first job was in new york city in the bronx i took a job at a blind and visually impaired school and i absolutely i loved it i totally would have stayed there that would have been my full-time job and that's where I would have stayed. But I, I really wanted more kind of in life. I, I lived in a small town, uh, as I mentioned, and uh, I just, I commuted to, to undergrad. I commuted to uh, graduate school. So I wanted, I wanted a change. I was living with my parents for what, 24 years, I think. And I was, I was ready to kind of move out and be on my own for once. So uh, I decided to jump into travel therapy with like five years experience in just in, into school-based travel therapy. So I was doing different school-based therapy jobs uh, each school year. And it was just a, a really great experience. My first year I went to California, I was in the San Francisco Bay area and I was just kind of jumping around the Bay each, each school year because I mean, California weather was so much better than New Jersey weather. So I really enjoyed it. And just being my first time living like real life, why not San Francisco? I mean, I feel like that's one of the the gay capitals of kind of the world uh, of, of the US. So it was a really great opportunity to learn and just be myself and not have to worry about anything. So I was definitely looking for for that experience in, in travel therapy. And I, I definitely think I got that. Segway. That was the perfect segue. Yeah. I was like, and now, <laughs> and now that you mentioned the gay capital, um, <laughs> were you out in grad school or before this? Like, tell us, you know, we, we learned about Alvin, the OT. Let's learn about Alvin the LGBTQ plus community member. Yeah. Um, so I think growing up, even before then, I, I definitely knew I was gay. I, I, there was always that attraction. I was like, oh, okay, we're trying to understand these feelings. But I grew up in a very kind of like Catholic household. Um, it was very much like I went to Catholic elementary school. I was forced to go to church every Sunday and knowing these things of what God kind of accepts and everything was always in the back of my mind. And it kind of fueled, looking back now, it fueled my anxiety of, uh, of who I was and whatnot. So I've definitely, early on looking back, I, I definitely struggled a lot with anxiety, more particularly like social anxiety of understanding how other people kind of perceive me. I always played back kind of conversations and whatnot in my head. So people always thought of me as this um, shy kid who didn't really want to talk to anyone, but I had my tight knit group of friends who I was able to open up to. But outside of that, I was just this quiet kid. No one wanted to knew, wanted to know about me or, or whatnot. But from there, uh, there wasn't as much representation in terms of gay males or role models. Um, growing up, yeah, I didn't know any. None. Yeah, like uh, a, a gay Filipino male, there was really, there was really none uh, for me at all. So I was I wasn't sure where where I was or where I stood in this world. So kind of figuring things out as I went on throughout high school and college is when I started to kind of put those pieces together and try to really understand where I belonged and finding my people within that. I started coming out around then. And I mean, I think people obviously in my circle knew and they were accepting about it. And so was, was family. So it, it was time for me to really kind of spread my wings and, and really get a good understanding of where I wanted to be in this world. So I think that's where the travel therapy kind of came into play of, okay, and now I need to just live my life away from everyone else and just be me and be who I am and really kind of accept those things and, and, and really be kind of have that self-love and, and, ex, and fully experience this. So uh, it, it was definitely a, a lot of fun just from OT school and just experiencing everything. Oh, 
It's <laughs> such a, I mean, as a fellow Filipino, you know, Roman Catholic raised person. Yeah. Actually, I'm I like, see you nodding. I'm just nodding like, nodding. the whole time I'm just like, why? This is the OT version of me. Like, this is, the similarities are impeccable. It's just one of those things where it's such a, a common cultural thing. And I totally get it, especially with the nurse yeah. thing uh, as well. So, you know, we kind of know what that's like for you as a gay man, but like as a gay OT and person of color, one, I don't think any of our audience knows what the demographics are like for OTs, to be honest. I know we're very female, uh, cis white female dominated in SLP land. Do you happen to know the demographics off the top of your head? Oh, yeah. Let me just pull that up. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Your brain is just a computer. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I'm pretty sure the demographics are pretty similar, pretty close to that of uh, SLPs. I mean, we're as a profession and just being part of the OT social media world, we're really pushing for more diversity, more people of color. And I'm really pushing for more males in this field. I think one of the biggest factors of not having enough males is because no one knows what we do. No one knows what we really do. And as an occupational therapist, no one knows what occupation is. It's so hard to explain and so hard to advocate for. So I think it's just super important to represent and just be present and, and show people in, in all these different forums through social media and just being more present in various media settings. I know there are a couple shows who have, that have talked about what OT was, but really pushing for more broadening our kind of scope of what the, the mainstream media sees of sees OT. So I think that's a big thing uh, that that's missing or lacking. Yeah. Well, and it, I, yeah, I'm wondering if, if it's the same in, in OT land, but I've noticed over the last couple of years in SLP land, that there's also, you know, from the LGBTQ perspective, there's more people speaking out and being more vocal about being inclusive in that way too. And I'm wondering if if OTs are are also trying to broaden things in, in that way. Yeah. I think there are definitely a lot more people who are speaking up and being present on the media. Like I think Dev, the Rainbow OT, uh, is really advocating a lot for our profession. He, he talks more about kind of the impacts of daily occupation in an adult setting. So uh, I can't speak too much about that because that's not my specialty, but like he'll, on his profile, he'll talk more about that. And there are various other uh, OTs on the platform that are bringing their stories out. And it's super important for us to have these platforms and these communities because this is where and how we grow and this is how we push our profession to those next limits and I, I know that's kind of part of what you guys do as well having this community of speech, speech therapists as well is, is just super important for something uh, for us to have uh, to grow and, and to, to show the world what we do as a profession and what kind of cultures we have as queer individuals. I think for speech therapy we have like a um the low hanging fruit that exists for many of the LGBTQ plus community is like gender affirming voice therapy. Like it's a very clear, like that's something that you can do to directly support your community. And so that allows for a lot more conversation within our field related to LGBTQ plus issues. Does OT have anything within their scope? I'm sure there is, but like, can you like, let us know what, queer related issues or, you know, like things that you address as a professional? Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing in the adult setting is kind of just transitions, like you're going to learn brand new ADLs, how do you uh, reteach that to someone? So like, that's something we do as OTs, we, we work on ADLs and whether it be kind of, I guess, toileting or, or, or female kind of anatomies and all of that. Um, that's something in adult OT that we can work on. Um, I know just from my experience, I've had kids who are in the process of transitioning where the mom would tell me she goes by she, but with friends and with, with, with this group of individuals, we're just going to use he. And 
really kind of trying to help navigate that in social situations in group settings is is something I've been doing and trying to build that confidence in wanting to 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 use what pronouns they feel like is necessary in those settings and and showing them support and just being there I think is just super important for for kids that are within this age range and this population that I work with um, is just being present and being there for them I think um, this world is is so new I think for for us there's no specific class and there's no specific things to learn from where we're just really having to use our therapeutic mindset to uh, adjust and figure out what's right and what's best right now for this individual. Awesome. Yes. I think, again, like you, you kind of touched on it. Like we, we kind of just instinctually like try to isolate, you know, like sexuality and gender to more adult environments and settings. But the reality is that like kids are being bombarded with it <laughs> since <Yeah. laughs> pre-birth. <laughs> and so it's yeah. one of those things that all of our professions need to be aware enough to work with because you, you, the, as much as we like, we can teach a pronoun, you know, lesson, but the reality is that like you have to generalize it across all mm-hmm. activities in order for it to actually be effective and to be valued. So yeah. kudos to you for like, you know, being part of that in your field. I mean, I've, I've had, um, one of my little cousins, he's, I think nine or whatnot, but when I was last home, he was telling me about some, some of his classmates and he was just, he just mentioned, yeah, um, this is my friend. So-and-so she's transitioning. Like it was kind of, that's like nothing. It just rolled off the top of his tongue. No big deal. Like for kids these days, these little things are nothing. Like coming out is nothing. Well, for us, I'm sure it was a big deal compared to to now. So um, it's good to see those little things and those little differences kind of being made. Um, but now what do we do? Like, how do we teach it? What's what's the most appropriate way to kind of address these things? I think that's what we're missing now. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can move forward towards towards learning those things. I think it's one of those things that we have to learn through experience. And, um, I, you know, I think what you said earlier about just being there as a supportive adult can mean so much to a kid. Like, even if you don't really know what to do, um, just being there and saying, I see you, I accept you. Um, and I'm here for you as a, you know, non-judgmental adult can be so powerful for a kid. Yeah, and then I've had situations, not necessarily with a with a queer child, but just any kid in general um, who's having a communication disorder. Just sometimes they just want to talk about their feelings, and that's what they need. And just being that adult for them can be just so meaningful. Um, so I have hope that that we'll learn as we go on how to do that. But. And I even think like little things like pronouns and little things like having a rainbow flag up in your classroom or your clinic space, that makes a difference. That makes someone think that, okay, I'm accepted here. I don't have to put up walls. I, I don't have to pretend to be someone else. So uh, those little things can seem really minor, but to, to kids especially, it can be really eye-opening and it can just build your therapeutic relationship even more. I think you're kind of touching on a lot of, I think the realities of all of our fields, especially when it comes to queer issues is like, it, it's truly going to be a transdisciplinary approach as far as like being able to address this fully. The SLPs aren't the only ones working on pronouns, you know, like, or even like affirming anything to be honest. Yeah, or um, like the so. social things, like what you were saying about um, helping them navigate something socially, like that's completely within the scope of practice for speech pathology too mm-hmm. yeah and so definitely that like hector said that multidisciplinary approach can be so important oh so good mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm. we talked about a lot of like goody goods but i i've been wanting to ask you this question you know because as a gay person of color uh, and um cis male working in pediatrics like it ain't always pretty um, and it's not always accepted. Yep. But, it, you know, in, in the great greatest of times, it's the best connection you could have, you know, because mm-hmm. 
those kids look to you. But what's it like as a as an OT working within that intersectionality that exists for you? I think it, we make it seem like it's this amazing job and all of this kind of um, this 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 picture. But yeah, there are definitely hard moments. I think being a person of color, being gay, and just a minority in this field, like it, it is definitely it, it's had its moments. I, I've listened to previous podcasts of you talking about it, and I'm just like, oh my god, yes, that that makes sense. That that I'm glad I'm not the only one. For for so long, I was like, is it me? Is it am I a bad therapist? Am I like not good at what I do? And and that's when that imposter syndrome kind of kicks in. But I've I've been in many settings where families. Not, not even meeting me. They're like, oh, I don't, yeah, we're not interested in working with a, a male therapist. Or I've been in IEP meetings that have questioned my, um, questioned goals that I have inherited. And um, <laughs> those goals were toileting goals and questioned why I would have goals within these areas. And oh. um, I was just like, <laughs> and it comes from like a very, older population, I think, of, of advocates or lawyers or, or whatnot per se, but, um, it's just, it's, it's been, it's been difficult. It, it's, it's had its moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, really? Ah, <laughs> uh, I just, I feel yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> Go ahead, I, I, you know, coming from another perspective and it's like, no one's ever questioned me about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I mean, I'm, I'm getting into maybe another topic that, that we could probably go on and on about, but to me, I can, I can link that back to toxic masculinity and like, you know, that a man can't, a man can't be a nurturer and can't be trusted to be a nurturer, um, Mm -hmm. or to do something, you know, like toileting. It's just like, it's, it's, I, I would think I'm just, I'm sort of speculating that to a man that would be very hurtful, you know, like the, the suggestion is that you will harm that child. And it's, it's, it gives me, the word. it just makes me so angry. And, um, like in my head, I've never gone there, like, and thought, Oh, like a male, you know, teacher would, you know, do that kind of thing. Like, I I guess maybe in my mind, I I tend to assume the best in people, but I can only guess that it it must be so hurtful to have people question you like that when you've done nothing to make them think that. And I think there are very much double standards in terms of like, we work in a, a, a male driven population. All of these kids, for the most part, are boys and no one's ever questioned a female taking them to the bathroom or, or, or anything. But for me to observe for, so for example, for this one particular client, um, that goal was written to address motor planning, uh, difficulties within a a bathroom's motor sequence. So I, I definitely had to observe her go into the bathroom and really assess if it is a motor planning deficit. And I took all proper precautions of having a, hit her female staff present when I was there, keeping the door open. And they just turned to to the, su- the supervisor and like, is this your protocol? Is he following protocol? Just questioning my kind of own abilities. And I'm just like, oh, yes, I- I've done everything for my for myself, because it is my license, the end on the line. So I, I always take proper protocols. Like whenever I'm alone with a client, I always have a door open and I always make sure that there's someone present when, when needed, especially with toileting or any other kind of change of clothes and whatnot. But, but yeah, it definitely impacts my kind of anxiety in many ways. I mean, you'll notice on my social media page, I'm not like full out, like, this is me, I'm gay, I'm this, I'm that. But it's because then I question would families not want to work with me if their child is a boy? Do they still have those instinctual things with them? And I'm, I work in a cash based, cash based practice. So if I don't have clients, I don't, I don't get money. So that's one of the reasons why 
I take kind of these precautions. Like, I mean, I'm definitely proud to be who I am. And when I'm with my close set of individuals, I, I, I don't have to worry. But having this kind of platform, I take proper precaution because in the end, it, it, it could impact my job. And the question is, I don't know if it could, but is it worth it in many ways? So I, I, I don't know. Oh, I, you know, the stakes are much higher. Like you said, you are in a cash based, like, I happen to be privileged to have the union to back me, you know, in these situations as a, as a district employee, you know, like I can feel a little bit more confident that there are things that should be in place to support me. Should I face any sort of repercussion for, you know, um, and, and, and thankfully I've had support, which is awesome. But again, like you said, like, it, it is a risk yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the, that yeah. in itself is the, that's, that's where the inequity li- lies is yeah. it's mm-hmm. a risk for us. It's not a risk for other people to be themselves genuinely, yeah. um, you know, whether that's social media or in person and yeah. that, and that's, and I. Well, we've talked about can, that before about how, mm-hmm. you know, it, you are taking a risk every time you're out as a queer person no matter what your profession is, you know, when you're in the work environment, it's a risk. Um, you know, I haven't had people question me, but I still, you know, if, if my door is not open to the student, I have a window that people can look in and see me, you know, just because it's, I think it's just a good professional habit to get into that, you know, no matter who you are, straight, gay, whatever, you know, just having, not having that room be closed off completely, I think is really smart thing to do. Um, because these things can come up, even though, you know, they might be unfounded. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just I've been opinion. in, yeah, <laughs> I've been in situations where I've had references, um, employers call my references and ask if they, feel safe with me being alone with kids and oh. I'm, really, <laughs> I'm hiding by the way listeners i'm like, hiding my face i'm so upset <laughs> but go so ahead upsetting. and like one of my references there she's she's so transparent with everything and like she's like it was a weird interview like she just wanted to know certain things about are you okay with um him being alone with 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 families just because uh certain families have displayed some discomfort with having a male therapist so we just want to make sure and whatnot. and i know my when i when i am a reference i for a female colleague i've never been asked certain questions like that so uh there are definitely kind of these double standards and these stigmas that are present and i think it's these little things that that have to change and um that's one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to, to talk with you guys and, and, and try to be a part of that change and, and show the world that um, that there are still problems that, that need to be addressed. Oh, yeah, you're 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 hitting it right on the nail. Like like you said earlier, we we definitely present as if our jobs like that. We are the blessed ones to be able to do our jobs. And then that's. And it's all encompassing goodness, which is, and mm-hmm. on one end, it provides you all a lot of good. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> on the other end, there is a lot of bull that you have to deal with yeah. just to, and that makes you question regularly if this is yeah. the right. Like, I left birth to three because I couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, no, that's that's not going to work. Probably if I get any more of this in elementary age, I'll probably go to geriatrics. <laughs> you know, like um, it burns you out to have your professionalism questioned regularly. And that's not an experience that everyone shares. So, it, you know, there's that. Well, and you, this, you know, our professions are already hard enough. You know, I think especially working in, pediatrics when you're in high you know ieps and high emotional situations um and you know you're you're working on you know someone's life you know a child's life right like there's already high stakes enough and to have you you know have your professionalism questioned you know, it just adds to that pile 
And Alvin, earlier you were talking about like how, how much someone can handle, right? How much a child can handle as far as sensory <laughs> things. And like, you know, we have that sensory lifestyle as adults too. And it's just like, that's just like another thing to put on the pile. Um, I have this friend yeah. who, who has some disabilities and, you know, she, she refers to it as like spoons. Like you only have so many spoons. Have you heard of this before? Or am I the only one? Like the game spoons? Maybe it's like you only have so many spoons to give, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, if you you know if you have a disability, you know you're giving away those spoons to something like you know getting around the house or, um, you know taking care of doctor's appointments, and so you have less to give to the rest of your life, and. I think, oh gosh, you know, if you've already got all these things in your job that are stressing you out, and then you just add on to that pile, you know, being a person of color or you know, being a queer person and having having your professionalism questioned because of those things, it's just it's it's taking more spoons. Yeah. Um, Resource allocation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's more. There. There's more effort. And your resources get depleted. And so, yeah, yeah burnout is real. It, oh. Especially when it's like not anything that you did. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like, I'm just, my being is burning me out. Yeah, it's like there's no, you haven't exhibited any behavior that people need to be concerned about. They're, you know, and we all pass background checks to work with children. Exactly. Right? <laughs> we all get fingerprinted. Every job that I've had with children. I have been fingerprinted and they check my background. Like that's all that, that, that should, should be enough. That should be enough. Yeah. Right. And I feel like em- employers should just feel confident in this therapist and, and really state like, Oh, but Alvin's like an amazing therapist. And I think you should at least try to work with him or whatnot. But I think many of the times family just, uh, or employers might just comply and be like, okay, we, we have so-and-so, um, and we'll give you this, this therapist instead. So, um, that's why many of the times, especially with families, I, I want them to get to know me as a therapist first before breaking down that personal wall of, of letting them in because yeah. I, I want them to know how I work with their child and I want them to know my abilities before anything else. Oh, you're right there. Like I'm like relating so much right now <laughs> because it's such a, a big part is you're right. Like I think a lot of the times my frustration comes from the fact that like, and I, I'm going to just voice this and it might be controversial, but we, we stress so much like cultural competency on the behalf of like clinicians and, and, you know, employers towards our families that we don't expect the same from our <laughs> clients on how they treat us as their providers. And so oftentimes you're right. Like you just, you get switched out, you know, instead of us having a, an educational or therapeutic repair, you know, restorative moment of like, well, you know, the same way that we accept other and respect the cultures of our families, we also expect our, you know, families to ex- understand and respect the cultures of our clinicians as well that dialogue doesn't happen and i know why because it's a money game but (laughs) you know like it's just uh i I, it always stops there it's the 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 resolution is not a conversation the resolution is to change therapist exactly it's definitely a money game and it's customer service like okay yeah what's pleasing to them we'll provide it to you so natalie and i always have a conversation about and we're not you know afraid to about our our organization, our governing body um, for SLPs. Um, could you tell us what <laughs> the, the governing organization or body is for OTs and and kind of like what their historic stance has been on, you know, LGBTQ plus issues, if any? <laughs> so I can tell you that uh, our governing body is the American OT Association. However, I don't know too much of the background and the history kind of to, to touch upon. So I think there's definitely things I'm sure that <laughs> this association can work on, but I don't know too too much in, in terms of specifics. Okay. Yeah. Because ours is like, it's a big deal that it's written in our code of ethics, you know, and we always harp on that. Like it's in our code of ethics to work with, 
individuals from the LGBTQ plus community, the the transgender uh, population specifically, you know, so I'm wondering if OT world has anything specific as well. I'm sure it's there. I just, I just don't know. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, we've also talked a little bit about, um, you know, how ASHA, our governing body, um, they, they take demographic studies every year when we renew our licenses, but they don't ask about, um, you know, who in this, you know, who in our profession is, um, LGBTQ, you know, they'll, they'll ask, you know, male or female, but they don't include, you know, non-binary people in that they don't, you know, they don't take a lot of demographic information for, for the LGBT community. So we don't even know how many of us are out there, you know, so we can't really just get an idea of like who they are and what, you know, what their concerns are. Does AOTA do any, um, like demographic studies on, you know, your professionals in that way? When I've had to kind of re-register and do all those kind of informational stuff and demographic stuff, I don't even think those questions were there. So most likely, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I'm not 100% sure. I try to stay away from all the the politics and (laughs) all of that stuff. (laughs) It's... I mean, I, we don't blame you. <laughs> no, <not at> all. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a, a certain demographic that is in at the top of all of our organizations right now. Yeah. So, um, the agent of agent of change might take some time to, to mm-hmm. get there, but I am looking at the time. I'm wondering if we can ask some of our, favorite questions that we like to of our folks on our proud professional episode. Sure. Should I ask Uh, one? Go for it. So what does being a proud professional mean to you? I definitely think being a proud professional means that you are kind of, you have a self-love for yourself and your accomplishments and you're uh, able to be yourself and be present in everything that you do as a professional. I don't think it, it definitely can be related to what can be seen on social media or, or what you do. I definitely think it's an instinctual internal feeling of, of being proud. I know when I teach kids emotions, they, they really have a hard time of figuring out what proud means. And it's really that feeling of accomplishment. And it's really knowing you tried your best and, and you're being the best self you can in whatever you do. So I think me being an OT, making sure that I'm providing the best care, providing the best service and being really authentic and building that therapeutic relationship and, and showing progress and being being proud of that and not hiding anything and not having these boundaries to, to hold back on. So uh, I think that's something, um, that's the way I see it, yeah. Awesome. What are your hopes for the the field of occupational therapy, uh, you know, in general, but also as it relates to the LGBTQ plus community? Uh, I think we we mentioned a little bit of that earlier. I think a big thing is education. I hope there are more courses for us to to really understand how to address all these areas that really need to be addressed, especially with kids. I think again, just this younger population, this is a norm to them coming out and transitioning. And we don't know too many ways to to address it as a therapist. So really finding whether it be evidence-based practice or a specific framework or some sort of theory to, to help them guide this journey. Because rather than kind of problem solving or using a trial and error process, I want something that's effective and, and making sure that kids are really receiving the best care. And then I think within one of the the issues we talked about, I think in terms of employers really pushing and really advocating for their their employees based off of their race, based off their sexuality, I think it's super important to put the therapist first and, and understanding their cultural backgrounds and everything first and foremost, rather than kind of just pushing it along to someone else. I think there's definitely 
changes going on. Again, I, I really do think based off my experience, all of these individuals were of an older generation and an older population. So I think eventually these changes will be made. But I think that's where we are uh, now and how I see kind of that, that, that future and, and where those changes are. Awesome. I love that. It makes me hopeful and I've learned so much. I'm glad that I, this was a great opportunity for me to learn more about OT in general. Again, thanks for being a, with us, Alvin, as our first ever non-SLP on the queer SLP. Hopefully not the last. Again, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. So, no, it was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at thequeerslp. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye. Bye.